The president's military aide said something to me that still sends shivers up my spine. He said, do you know what their job is? And, you know, not being a military guy, I said, no. And he said, their job is if someone fires a surface-to-air missile at us on final approach, their job is to put themselves between that missile and the president of the United States. This is the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoella. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Today, we are so honored to be joined by Michael Morell, the former acting director and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, Michael, you have spent over 30 years with the CIA. You've served with distinction, and you have been at the forefront of our country's fight against international terrorism. You were an integral part of the planning of the bin Laden raid. And you have concurrently worked to address a changing global landscape that faces the United States in the 21st century. In your career after the agency, you have striven to educate people on the challenges and lessons learned of national security through lectures at many distinguished universities across our country. And you also host a podcast called Intelligence Matters, hosted by CBS News, where you discuss many of the most pressing national security issues of the day with the people who know them the best. We're so honored to have you. You're welcome. It is great to be with you guys. And how could you turn down an invitation to be on a podcast called The Burn Bag? I mean, how cool, how cool is that? Well, thank you for that. Uh, you know, the name kind of just came to um, uh, uh, Javed. Uh, just, you know, he, had, of course, was in, in and out of the U.S. government for over 20 years. So, you know, he's had plenty of experience with burn bags, as I'm sure you have. And so kind of just stuck. But yeah, so as Andre said, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on with us. I'd like to just point out, for those of you listening, Intelligence Matters is really an awesome podcast. Andre and I are avid listeners, and we kind of use it as a model. It's kind of the gold standard of national security podcasts. And so, um, you know, a lot of inspiration for this podcast kind of came from it. So uh, in one vein, thank you for having such a great podcast. And of course, secondly, thank you for your service and your decades uh, serving the CIA. Well, thank you guys. And, and it's good to be with you. And you have a great podcast too. So a little, little cross promotion is a good thing. Thank you very much. So let's, let's jump right into it. So first, many Americans and non-Americans alike know the CIA by its Hollywood depiction. But well, you've been with the CIA for over 30 years and you led it. So what does the CIA's work look like in reality? And we'd love for you to debunk some of these common myths about the agency. That's a great question. Nobody, nobody has ever asked me that. You know, there are, um, there are three Hollywood myths. So one Hollywood myth is what I would call the James Bond myth, right? And the James Bond myth is that the agency can do anything. Right? There's not a secret they can, can't steal. Um, there's not a plot they can't stop. Um, everything they do turns out gold. Um, you know, that, that myth is not true, right? I mean, we're, we're an organization like any other. We're an organization of human beings. There's things we get right. There's things we get wrong. Um, there's days we struggle. There's days we don't. So, so the James Mod Bond myth doesn't work. Then there's the, the, the get smart myth right? The, the, these guys um, can't get anything right myth. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's some people on the far left who, who share that view, right? That the CIA, everything the CIA touches um, turns out bad. 
um, the CIA can't do anything right. And that myth obviously isn't true either. The Central Intelligence Agency produces intelligence every day that keeps Americans safe. And then then there's a third myth, um, which may be the most pernicious at the end of the day. And the third myth is what I would call the Jason Bourne myth. And the Jason Bourne myth is that the CIA is rogue, right? That the CIA is out there doing things without the knowledge of the seniors in the executive branch, you know, without the knowledge of Congress. Um, And while that was true a long time ago, um, it is not true today. There is nothing that the CIA does that, that isn't vetted at the highest levels of the executive branch um, and at the highest levels of the Congress um, driven by the two intelligence committees. So that rogue nation, that, that, that rogue agency um, myth is, is, is one I do not like. Um, you know, people ask me all the time about certain covert actions and they always will say, you know, a CIA covert action. And I'll say, no, an American covert action, right? Because every covert action is ordered by the president in writing and, a, and briefed to the Congress and approved by the attorney general and approved by the rest of the national security team. Um, so it really is an American covert action. And this, this, this rogue myth, I think, is a very dangerous one. Absolutely. And of course, over time, the CIA, although it's an independent agency, right, there is more oversight with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, so thank you for debunking those myths. I think that's important to kind of get out of the way just so our listeners kind of have a better understanding of how the agency operates. Uh, but you, of course, have had the unique experience of being at the highest levels of the CIA. And so, you know, being acting director, what does a day in the life look like for a CIA director? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you sort of a day in my life, right? I don't know, I don't know to what extent it it's the same for every director or, or deputy director or acting director. Um, but I would get up at about four o'clock and my wife and I would go together to work out and, um, I'd work out, she would work out for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And then, um, I would go off to work with my security detail and she would go off to do her day. Um, so I would actually get to my desk about 5.45, 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I would be met by my PDB briefer, by my daily intelligence briefer, the person who took care of me. And what they had done throughout the night is put together a big, thick binder. And in that binder um, was the CIA media highlights. So all of those media stories that mention CIA in some way, um, or talk about national security issues in general, that would be at the front of my binder. Um, and that would be followed by that day's president's daily brief. So what the president um, himself was seeing that day. Um, and then it would be filled with, with other, um, other CIA and other intelligence community analysis that my briefer thought I needed to see. And then a whole bunch of what we call raw traffic. So you know, um, individual reports from CIA spies, individual reports from the National Security Agency, you know, intercepts of communications, um, overhead um, photography, satellite photography. Um, so, you know, I'd probably have in that binder 300 pages that I would take an hour with to go through with my, with my briefer. Um, it was my, it was my hour to get smart on 
all of the intelligence we were presenting to our customers and an opportunity to get smart on all the new intelligence that was coming in. And it was my opportunity to ask questions. So, so, so one of my big roles in sitting at the policy table in the situation room was to listen to the conversation, to see where the policymakers were, um, to see what they needed from us in terms of answers to questions. And in the morning, I would use that opportunity with my briefer to task, you know, write a memo on this for tomorrow morning, write a memo on that, write a memo on this. So every day I'd probably task out, you know, five to 10 memos that then would get produced during that day and handed out to senior policymakers um, the next morning. So that was my, you know, my six to seven o'clock. I loved that hour. Um, I probably loved that hour more than any other. And then really the meetings of the day started. So, um, you know, probably about seven thirty, eight o'clock, we'd have an agency staff meeting where all of the agency seniors came to the director's conference room. And, um, and I would say, here's what I'm doing today. You know, here's what I did yesterday. Here are some important things that came out of yesterday's meetings. Here's what I'm doing today. Here's some things I need that I don't ha- that I don't have yet. Um, and then we'd go around the table, and everybody would do the same thing. Here are some important things that we think everybody needs to know. And it was a great way to keep in touch with everything the agency was doing. Um, and then, at that point, meetings started. So I'd say from about nine o'clock until about five o'clock, there were just meetings after meetings and probably break the meetings into three groups. You know, the first meeting were meetings at the White House or on the Hill, Um, four or five hours a day sometimes of meetings at the White House, you know, a couple of deputies meetings back to back, Um, you know, probably once or twice a week going to Capitol Hill to meet with one of the intelligence committees for an hour. Um, so that's one type of meeting. And then a second type of meeting would be meeting with our foreign counterparts. So I would travel overseas to meet with my foreign counterparts, but they would also visit Washington. So I'd say, you know, at least an hour a day, um, you know, maybe, maybe 10 hours a week, I would spend with the heads of foreign intelligence services. Um, and we would talk about the issues and we would talk about working together and we would talk about the issues we're working on together and how those are going and what more could we do. Um, it's the second type of meeting. And then um, the third type of meeting were sort of internal management of CIA meetings. You know, we would have, we would have things that we were trying to accomplish as an organization, um, whether they were substantive, you know, how do we collect more intelligence on North Korea, say, or they might be, how do we do a better job with leadership training? But there'd be a series of, series of, um, series of meetings during the day around the management and leadership of the agency. And that would go on until, you know, six o'clock, five, six o'clock. Um, and then I would do paperwork. I would do paperwork, um, both in the office and then bring a lot of paperwork home. And the paperwork would be kind of normal stuff that came across my desk that I would have to approve. Um, and it would be preparation for meetings the next day. So if I had to go to a deputies meeting the following day, my staff would put together, here's everything you need for that meeting. And I would do that studying at night. So I'd go home and have dinner with my family. And then, you know, I'd go to my um, little secure room um, in my house um, and, uh, and work some more. So I probably worked 16 hours a day, um, maybe half of that on Saturday. And I would try to 
I try to take Sunday off. But that was kind of a typical day. Goodness. I mean, I think a lot of people really don't really get that, actually. Like, I mean, it is a massive sort of chunk of time you're working nearly 24-7, except for the hours in which you're sleeping. So, I mean, goodness. Well, anyways, uh, we're now approaching the 19th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Uh, Michael, you were President Bush's daily intel briefer on 9-11, and you accompanied the president throughout that day. Uh, could you take a few minutes to recount some of your experiences on that day? Could you tell us what was going through your mind, and what was your role in briefing the president? It's a great question. Um, that day is a day is seared in my memory. You know, I could tell you um, about every minute of that day from getting up at 3.30 in the morning to put the briefing together um, till the time I got home and sat on the couch with my wife and listened to um, the president speak to the nation. Um, and then checking in on my children, um, who were quite young at that point before we went to sleep. But, you know, the two things that really stand out to me um, about that day are the intensity of doing my job um, and then the, the surreal. Um, and so let me give you a couple of examples of each. Um, so an example or two of the intensity of doing my job, um, after we left... Um, after we left Florida and we were flying around the Gulf of Mexico, not sure where we were going to go, um, the president asked to see me. Um, so in his small office on Air Force One, it was the president, um, Andy Card, his chief of staff, and me. And the president looked me right in the eye, which was very George Bush-like, and he said, Michael, who did this? And I told him, uh, Mr. President, um, I haven't seen any information or any intelligence that would take us to a perpetrator. So you're going to get my best guess here, right? I'm not giving you solid facts. And he said, I understand the caveat. Now keep going. Um, so I said, Mr. President, um, you know, your mind may wander to a nation state, um, you know, as a possible perpetrator. Um, you know, there are a couple of nation states that have the capability to do this, Iran and Iraq, but Mr. President, I don't believe that either of those countries has anything to gain. Um, and both of them have certainly everything to lose from doing something like this. So I think when we get to the end of the trail, we're going to find Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. And I told him that I was so sure of that, that I would bet my children's future on it. Um, he then said, when will we know? Which is the kind of direct question you get from a president. Um, and there's not, you know, there's not an answer to that. So I fell back on something that CIA analysts are taught to provide, which is context. So I searched through my memory to previous terrorist attacks on the United States and how long did it take us to figure out who did it. So I told him, Mr. President, the East Africa bombings took us a couple days to figure out it was Al-Qaeda, so it happened very fast. Um, the bombing of the USS Cole um, off the coast of Yemen, um, it took us two to three months to figure out that that was Al-Qaeda. And then the bombing of, I told him, the bombing of Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, it took us a year to figure out that that trail ended in Tehran with the Iranians. So I said, Mr. President, we may know soon. And then again, it may take us some time. So that's kind of an example of doing the, the intensity of my job. Um, 
during the flight back to Washington, the CIA sent me a piece of intelligence that the director of CIA wanted the president to see. It was a piece of intelligence that was given to us by one of our European partners. And it was really hard to tell what the quality of the sourcing was on it. Um, but the message was, the message was really clear. The message was what happened today is the first of two waves of attacks on the United States. So here's the president who just suffered through the most significant attack on the homeland in American history. And here's his intelligence briefer showing him a piece of information that says it's going to happen again. So you can imagine what that conversation was like. And then an example of the surreal, um, and there were many, many during the day, but, but probably the most probably the most intense is as we were approaching Andrews Air Force Base um, that evening, the president's military aide, um, the guy who carries the nuclear football, was looking out the windows of the left side of the aircraft. And he saw me looking at him and we'd become friends during the previous nine months. Um, and he saw me looking at him and he waved me over. So I walked over to the window and it was kind of dark inside Air Force One. The lights were dimmed. And he said, look, um, and he you know, pointed out the window. So I looked out the window and there was an F-16 on the wingtip of Air Force One. And he told me that there was another, um, there was another aircraft on the other wingtip. He told me they were, they were from the DC Air National Guard. And guys, it was, it was so close. The aircraft was so close that you could see the pilot. You could see the pilot's facial features. You could see the pilot looking at us, and in the distance, you could see the still burning, smoldering Pentagon. And then the president's military aide said something to me that sent, still sends um, shivers up my spine. He said, do you know what their job is? And you know, not being a military guy, I said, no. And he said, their job is if someone fires a surface-to-air missile at us on final approach, their job is to put themselves between that missile and the president of the United States. So example of the surreal. That's incredibly heavy and that's incredibly sobering. So, I mean, that was undoubtedly a tragic day. And uh, as you know, from being in these leadership positions within the agency, certainly there's always controversy after these events, especially after 9-11, about you know, things we might have like missed. So in terms of intelligence, did we miss anything? If so, what did we miss? And in the future, how did the agency change to prevent attacks from the, to prevent attacks like this from happening again? Yeah, so I call I call it's a great question. I call 9-11 a national failure. Um I think that intelligence failed. I think policy failed. I think we failed as a society. Um, you know, an example of the intelligence failure was we, you know, we simply didn't penetrate um, the senior most leadership of Al Qaeda um, with spies to know that they were going to do this so we could have prevented it. Um, that happened routinely after 9-11. And it happened, you know, somewhat routinely before 9-11. So that's the intelligence failure. Um, you know, the policy failure was that um, the Clinton administration, the CIA knew by 1986 that bin Laden was intent on building a global 
international terrorist organization was intent on attacking the United States, including in the homeland, and was intent on um, acquiring weapons of mass destruction as early as 1986. Um, and of course, we suffered through the East Africa bombings and the coal bombings and a whole set of attacks around the millennium um, that Al-Qaeda was planning and that we prevented, that we stopped. Um, and so the policy failure to me is not in, take, in taking greater action against Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. So, you know, one of the questions in my mind is why didn't we, from a policy perspective, do what we did in Abbottabad um, before 9-11, right? Why didn't we take action before 9-11? And there's a lot of good answers to these, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think you can call it a policy failure. Um, and then this, what's the societal failure? So one of the really interesting things is, is Vice President Gore, during the Clinton administration, led a commission on aviation safety. And there was a chapter in that commission report on aviation security. And in that chapter, they talked about all of the terrorist threats to aviation um, and, and laid out a whole range of recommendations for what the airline industry and what the government could do to better protect aircraft. None of those recommendations were implemented, in large part because the airlines lobbied against them, because the airlines felt that their passengers would not put up with the the increased scrutiny, the increased hassle um, of, uh, of security lines, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, that's the societal failure. So I think, you know, um, I think that's the way the 9-11 Commission sort of saw it at the end of the day. Um, but look, you'll, you'll, if you're in the intelligence business and, and, and you in some way play a role in not stopping something from happening that's bad, you know, you, you ask yourself the rest of your life, is there anything, you know, that I could have done differently? So, you know, that I continue to think about that still, you know, 20 years later. Absolutely. I mean, Andre and I can only imagine what that's like, but you mentioned about about, so let's fast forward nearly a decade to the raid on the Bin Laden compound in Pakistan. We'd love to kind of walk through parts of the raid, uh, given your leading role in planning it with then director Leanne Panetta and the rest of the CIA and other U.S. government stakeholders. So of the 2001 Battle of Tora Bora, which was during the onset of the Afghan war, saw Bin Laden's escape from U.S. forces, and then he disappeared for, you know, more or less virtually for a decade. Uh, and then the Bush administration said in 2006 that Bin Laden's capture or finding wasn't a top national security priority, but uh, what was it actually like in government at the time? What, were, were you guys still pursuing Bin Laden actively? Yes. So, um, you know, this idea, there's an idea out there that we stopped looking and I think it was, you know, uh, partly a reflection of President Bush's comment, which, which was not a reflection of policy or what CIA was trying to do. It was trying to downplay the importance of bin Laden to the, to the international terrorist movement, right? It was, it was, um, it was policy communication. Um, but there wasn't a single lead that we did not take to its very end. And there were literally hundreds of leads from the day we lost him in Tora Bora um, until August of 2010 when um, 
Secretary Panetta and I were first were first briefed on this. There's not a single thread we didn't, not a single lead we didn't follow until it it ran out. And the lead that eventually took us to Abbottabad began in 2002. Um, just to show you, right, that we'd never stopped looking at any lead. So the the lead that eventually paid off was was eight years old by the time. Um, you know, somebody showed up in our offices and said, you know, we've got something interesting here. Okay. So, well, now we fast forward to 2010. And as you said, from 2002, this intelligence is starting to be collected about this compound. How did we find him? What was the most immediate, if you could say there was an immediate sort of source of intelligence that led us to him? What alerted you and the CIA to his hiding spot? Yeah. So, um, so I should start by saying that that uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't any direct evidence that he was there. So it's not like we had a spy that said, you know, Osama bin Laden is in this compound. This was um, this was a circumstantial case. This was an analytic case, um, and it really does date back to 2002. So in 2002, um, a terrorist detainee who was um, in the detention of a foreign government told that government about a guy named Abu Ahmed, um, who was bin Laden's, was close to bin Laden prior to 9-11, was close to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed um, after 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed being the the mastermind of 9-11, and somebody who was um, a courier for bin Laden. So then we started, so this, this foreign government told us this information. Um, and we said, no, we got to find this guy named Abu Ahmed. So we started asking other detainees, including our own detainees about this guy named Abu Ahmed. Um, and so they told us, yes, you know, very important, um, in bin Laden's world, um, courier, um, a couple people told us um, he could still be a courier. One person told us he could be the kind of person who might be living with bin Laden. Um, you know, at that time, we had two very senior Al Qaeda operatives in our detention. One was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, and the other was another individual. And we specifically asked them about this guy named Abu Ahmed. And interestingly, they. Um, one of them said, never heard of him, never heard of this guy, which was in contrast to what everybody else had told us. And another, the other one said, um, oh, yes, I remember him, but he left Al-Qaeda a long time ago. And he's still not, he's, he's, he's not in the business anymore. Um, and then Khalid Sheikh Mohammed went back to his cell. And of course, we had the cell bugged, right? And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told the other detainees, that nobody should say anything about the courier. So now our interest in this person, Abu Ahmed, went sky high, right? Because the most senior person we have, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is telling us he doesn't know him. And now he's telling, he's telling all of his friends in, in, in the prison, you know, not to say anything about him. Um, so it took us, so we start trying to find this guy. And it took us... Um, it took us a number of years to figure out that he was a Kuwaiti citizen. Um, it then took us some more time to figure out what his true name was. Abu Ahmed was his Arab nickname. It wasn't his true name. 
Um, then it took us um, a little bit longer to find out what his phone number was, what phone he was using and what his number was. Um, then it took us a little while to identify him, his location in Pakistan. Um, and so we did, we, f- we found him um, and his phone in Peshawar, Pakistan, and we followed him, you know, in, in, in kind of movie style, we followed him, surveilled him from Peshawar all the way back to Abbottabad. Um, and then we started looking at the compound. And when you looked at the compound, the compound was extraordinarily interesting. Um, it was two, three, four times larger than the other compounds in the same area. It, was, it had concrete walls 12 to 18 foot high. Um, with barbed wire on top. None of the other compounds in the area had that. Um, The compound itself was sectioned off, so it was difficult to move from one part of the compound to the other. Um, The main building didn't have many windows. Um, There was a balcony off the third floor of the main building, but it it had a privacy wall, so if you're sitting on the balcony, you couldn't see out. And I remember Director Panetta at the very first meeting saying, what's the point of having a, pri- a, a balcony with a privacy wall? Isn't the whole point of a, a balcony to be able to see out? So there were all these really interesting things about the compound. Um, you know, we learned that um, Abu Ahmed and his brother had purchased the compound um, several years earlier. Um, they had no they had no apparent financial means, so it wasn't clear where they got the money from. Um, they had a lot of kids in the compound. Those kids did not go to school like the other kids in the neighborhood. Um, this compound burned their trash, unlike the rest of the neighborhood that put their trash out for collection. This was a pretty upscale part of Pakistan. Um, no internet, um, no phone lines going into the place. Um, so all, you know, all very unusual. Um, so that's kind of, that was the first kind of set of information that was, um, presented to the director in me and the first set of information that was presented to, and that was in August of 2010. Um, and I'll never remember that, but I'll never forget that day because our, the head of our counterterrorism center after a meeting said to director Panetta and to me, I need to see the two of you alone, you know, which didn't happen very often. So we went back to the director's office and he told us about this guy named Abu Ahmed, told us the whole history, told us about this compound, showed us some pictures, right? And that was the first time we heard it. Basically what I just told you guys. Um, And then that's basically the same story we told uh, President Obama um, the next month in September of 2010, was the first briefing for President Obama. And President Obama gave gave us two orders, and I'll never forget this either. He said, he said, I have... I have two directives for you guys. Number one, um, find out what is going on inside that compound. And number two, don't tell anybody. Don't tell the Secretary of Defense. Don't tell the Secretary of State. Don't tell the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Don't tell the Attorney General. Don't tell the FBI Director. The only people that know about this are us. So this was the best kept secret that I have ever been involved in. Um, We did start to bring other people into it in... um, Later that fall, late, late that fall, when the president wanted us to start thinking about um, 
options for going into the compound and we needed to talk to the US military about that. So he gave us permission to talk to the military. And that's when we bought, brought Bill McRaven in, um, who was really the one who planned um, and, and, and carried out the raid. Um, I was involved in the intelligence part of it. Um, and, uh, and, and Bill McRaven led the operational part of it. Wow. I mean, that's an incredible account of kind of what went down in the lead up. But on the day of the raid itself, what was going through your head? Can you kind of describe uh, how the day unfolded? You actually watched the raid from the Situation Room. There's that very famous photo of everyone kind of crammed in to the small room watching it unfold. Uh, what was the most memorable takeaway from this whole situation? Yeah, so, so I wasn't in that picture um, and I wasn't in the Situation Room at that moment when that picture was taken. I was there later when another picture was taken. But um, Director Panetta and I were at CIA headquarters um, in a makeshift operations center um, because the president wanted this to be a CIA covert action, this, this mission of going in and seeing if he's there and if he is getting him. Um, and the president wanted it to be a covert action because if we were to go in and he wasn't there and the Pakistani didn't detect us going in or coming out, we just would have denied everything. We would have denied it ever happened, which you can do when CIA does something. You can legally deny something that happened um, if it's a CIA covert action. So because the president made it a CIA covert action and not a military operation, um, the chain of command went from the president to Leon Panetta as the CIA director to Bill McRaven, the operational commander. The secretary of defense was not in the chain of command. So we were at CIA watching this whole thing unfold in our operations center. And it was only after we got bin Laden, um, you know, some, some confidence, the, the, the SEALs called out that they thought they got him. Um, that Leon and I then got in the car and went to the White House and joined the president there. Um, you know, it it the day the day started with 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 uh, Director Panetta and I in his office alone, um, and we were about ready to leave his office and go to the this this makeshift operations center and and he said to me, "So what do you think?" Uh, and I said. You know, Mr. Mr. Director, the the truth is, I won't be surprised if he's there, and I won't be surprised if he's not. And I remember Director Panetta saying, "You know, I feel the same way." Um, the other thing I remember is when we got him. You know, we were we were you know we were happy that this turned out the way the way it did. You know, we were happy that our analysts were right and we took off the battlefield the number one terrorist in the world but there was no high-fiving um you, you know not only was he killed but his son was killed um both both brothers um abu Ahmed and his brother abrar were killed and one of their wives was killed um the children in the compound were obviously scared to death so and you know we saw all this play out in front of us right so um, there wasn't, there wasn't any high-fiving. There wasn't any high-fiving in the situation room either. Um, when we got to the situation room, the question was, was, you know, did we get him? How confident are that we got him? Um, and, you know, 
the when 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 Bill McRaven had him back in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, they you know laid him on the floor and um, they didn't have a measuring uh, tape, so they put a six foot Navy SEAL down next to him, and he was about the 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 body was six inches taller. So, you know, Bill McRaven said it looks like you know it looks like our guy, you know, six foot six. Um, but he'd been shot in the face, which is not a pretty thing. It's not it's not like in the movies. Right. When you get shot in the head, it's a small hole. You know, in real life, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, so facial recognition, you know, could take us only so far. But the facial recognition we could do, um, you know, gave us a pretty high confidence that it was him. But still, the president was was a little concerned and cautious about making a call too early because, you know, the worst thing that could have happened was the president going out and saying, you know, we got bin Laden. And then the next day, bin Laden turns up and says, you know, no, you didn't. Here I am. Right. So um, the president really wanted to be sure. Um, and all of that kind of changed when the, the head of the Pakistan military called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mike Mullen, um, in the Situation Room and said, congratulations, you guys got bin Laden. Um, and, and because the Pakistanis had finally shown up at the compound and they, they had the families cause we left the family, the, the women and children there. Um, and the Pakistanis learned from them who, who was there. So with that, we were pretty confident and the president felt he could, he could speak to the nation. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, and most people don't know this is the very first phone call that. President Obama made when we were confident that it was bin Laden was to President Bush, you know, which is a pretty classy thing. Um, and just to add on to that, um, President Obama, knowing that I was with President Bush on 9-11, asked me to fly to Dallas to brief President Bush on the intelligence and the operation. So two weeks after the raid, I took with me to Dallas um, the head analyst and the, 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 the planner of the military operation, and we spent two and a half hours with President Bush walking him through every single detail. Um, you know, he was, he was like a kid in a candy shop and wanted to know every single detail. Um, of both the intelligence story and the 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 military raid story, and I remember at the end of the two and a half hours, he said, "He said, you know, Laura and I were going to go to the movies tonight, but this is better than any movie you could possibly go to, so we're going to stay home." Um, but it was a very, very, very classy thing um, for Barack Obama to do to ask me to go to Dallas and brief um, President Bush. Wow, that sounds just incredible and in a way it sort of serves as this weird sort of bookend i mean with the tragic events in 9-11 and then just virtually a decade later the uh, the killing of bin laden successful and it just sounds like a strange bookend to a big chapter of your career you know just to, just to add to that bookend piece so um you know, as we were leaving President Bush's office in Dallas, he went to his desk and he took out one of his um, challenge coins. You know, military units have these challenge coins that they share with each other. And the President of the United States has a number of different challenge coins. And um, President Bush reached into his desk and pulled out his commander in chief challenge coin and slapped it 
in my hand and shook my hand and said, thank you. And I could see closure in his eyes. So I think it was bookended for him too at that moment. That's an incredibly beautiful moment, honestly, I think. And I mean, judging from this large chunk of the interview, I mean, I think it's safe to say that for the first two decades of the 21st century, many Americans saw these non-state actors, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, as the country's biggest threats. But before we close off the interview, we just wanted to ask you this one thing. Uh, We appear to see a return to great power conflict as relations with China and Russia have grown more antagonistic in these recent years. Uh, And moreover, in 2019, not too many people would have seen a global pandemic as a legitimate threat. Uh, What, in your view, are the biggest threats that the United States faces that are not at the forefront of media coverage or policy discussions? What are we missing? Is there anything that we're undervaluing, not talking about as much that we should talk about more? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me me say two things. One is that there are only three existential threats to the United States of America, right? That would put the very existence of our country at risk. Um, One is nuclear war with Russia. And, you know, we're not exactly where we need to be in terms of um, um, our nuclear agreements with the Russians. And tensions are higher than, than with the Russians than they've been in a long time. You know, so that's something to worry about. Um, the second is a naturally occurring or man-made pathogen that, that you know, kills hundreds of millions. Um, you know, we're actually lucky with the coronavirus that it doesn't have a higher lethality rate than it has. So put together, put together um, a pathogen that spreads as easily as coronavirus but one that kills, you know, 20 times, 20 times as, as many people. Um, and you have a real risk to the existence of the country. Um, and then the third, which nobody thinks about, um, is climate change. I mean, I really believe that climate change, you know, is a, is a significant threat to our country, um, certainly to being able to live in certain parts of the country. Um, and you know we see already the significant economic effects of climate change and the major weather events that it has caused and you know we're going through one right this minute the the speed with which this hurricane hurricane laura went from went from a tropical storm to a you know a cat 4 almost a cat 5 hurricane was amazingly fast um and so i think climate change is something that we don't think enough about um, and then I'll say, and the second thing I'll say is, is the greatest threat to U.S. national security is our own politics, because we will never be able to get our foreign policy, national security policy right, and we're not going to be strong enough to be able to deal with the challenges that the world throws at us as long as our politics is as divisive and as unproductive as it is now. And so I, I think without a doubt that the thing that keeps me up the most at night, you know, is not a terrorist with a nuclear weapon that scares the hell out of me. But what really scares the hell out of me is the failure of our political system to do what American politics did best for, you know, two centuries, compromise. 
you know, compromise and make policies that advance our economy and our society. Because at the end of the day, the most important determinant of a nation's national security is the health of its economy and its society. And so that's what the biggest threat is. And, um, you know, that's what I worry about the most. Absolutely. I mean, these are uh, crucial insights. And so thank you for that. Um, But as a final question, we'd love to kind of hear what you've kind of been doing since leaving the CIA. Of course, you have your podcast, you're a a CBS contributor, I believe. And so how do you keep yourself busy? What projects are you working on? We'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So I'm on some boards, um, which is a typical thing that that former seniors um, in government or in the private sector do. So I'm on some corporate boards. Um, I do a lot of consulting. Um, you know, the, the consulting I do kind of falls into two buckets. One is helping CEOs understand what's going on in the world and what it means for their business um, as one type of consulting. And then the other type of consulting is helping high-tech startups who think they have something to offer the national security community, DOD or the IC, um, is to help them think about their product and their offering and how to make it more useful to that national security community. So that's another type of consulting I do. Um, I do the CBS uh, thing, as you mentioned. Um, I do an awful lot of writing. Um, I'm a contributing columnist to the Washington Post, so I write a lot of op-eds. Um, I do some speaking um, around the country. You know, it haven't since COVID started, but you know, I was kind of on the speaking circuit and. Um, I particularly enjoyed speaking at universities because um, that's the future of our country. Um, and then I also do some teaching. So I've done some teaching in a variety of places, most recently at George Mason University, where I taught my own class on intelligence analysis. And that was a lot of fun. That sounds like a great way to sort of keep busy. Certainly, you're, you are not retired. And while well, you're sharing all your great insights and your lessons with our generation. And well, I just want to say thank you, Michael, for taking the time to join us. You've been very generous with your time. And, you know, first of all, thank you so much for your distinguished and lengthy service to our country in helping us address these issues of national security and in keeping the homeland safe. And uh, just one last thing, though. As you can see, our title is The Burn Bag Podcast. And you have been at the CIA for more than 30 years, serving at its highest levels. Could you give us an estimate of how many burning bags you might have used in your time to CIA? Oh, gosh. Um, tens of thousands, I'm, I'm sure. Tens of thousands. Um, and, you know, there's one thing about the burn bags that I never understood. Um, and that was, you know, they required you to staple them shut before you threw them down this chute. But as soon as you threw the bag into the chute, the bags broke open. And you could hear, right, all the papers fluttering down this chute. So I never understood the requirement to staple the bag shut. Never got that. <laughs> that's that's interesting. And well, yeah, thank you again. You can follow Michael at Michael J. Morell on Twitter. Please subscribe to his podcast, Intelligence Matters, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review. Please subscribe to the Burn Bag podcast as well. <laughs> uh, make sure you follow us on social media at Burn Bag Pod to get the latest updates. This has been the Burn Bag podcast. 